Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. to another episode of Talking Tudors. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. Before we dive into this week's episode, I'd like to introduce you to A Weekend with Elizabeth I, a two-day online event exploring the life and reign of this iconic Tudor queen that's taking place on the weekend of the 17th and 18th of February 2024. Enjoy talks by seven leading Tudor history experts, all from the comfort of your home. Participants will have access to all the content for two months after the event ends, so there's plenty of time to catch up if you're unable to watch any of the lectures over the weekend. The stellar list of contributors includes Dr. Nicola Tallis, Professor Susan Doran, Dr. James Taff, Professor Carol Levin, Professor Maria Haywood, and Dr. Owen Emerson. To learn more and to register your place, head to my website on thetudortrail.com or just Google A Weekend with Elizabeth I Event Bright. I do hope you'll consider joining me. I'd also like to acknowledge and thank the generous listeners who continue to support Talking Tudors on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. If you love the podcast and you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors Patreon community. Please visit patreon.com slash talkingtudors for more information. Join the Talking Tudors Patreon family to instantly unlock access to exclusive posts, including audio releases and videos. Patrons are also eligible to attend additional monthly live talks and to take part in a member-only book club. They can also enter patron-only monthly giveaways to name but a few of the perks. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled to welcome Professor Carol Levine to the podcast to chat about the life and reign of Elizabeth I. Carol is Willa Cather, Professor of History Emerita at the University of Nebraska. She specializes in early modern English history. She's the author or editor of 20 books, most recently The Reign and Life of Queen Elizabeth I, Politics, Culture and Society. She has held fellowships at the Folger Shakespeare Library and the Newbury Library, where she was also the historical consultant for the Queen Elizabeth exhibit. She was a Fulbright Scholar at the University of York. She co-edits the series Queenship and Power for Palgrave and the new interdisciplinary approaches to early modern culture for Routledge. Her play about Queen Elizabeth I to speak or use silence was performed in St. Louis in June 2023. Let's dive straight into our conversation. Welcome to Talking Tudors, Carol. How are you? I am really well and so thrilled to be here and so thrilled with what you do, Natalie. 
Oh, thank you so much. I've been so looking forward to our conversation as well. So I suppose it would be lovely if you might just introduce yourself to our listeners and just tell us a little bit about you and your background. I'm Carol Levin. I'm Willa Cather Professor Emeritus at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln, Nebraska in the United States. And uh, I have been fascinated with Queen Elizabeth actually since I was a child. And it is my it was my total joy to have a career where I could teach about Elizabeth and many other things and do research. I'm the author of 20 books, uh, many, many, many articles, but I've also done creative work on uh, Elizabeth and other Renaissance topics, Shakespeare as well. And that has given me great joy also. I don't know if you need more information than that. No, Natalie. that's amazing, Carol. And 20 books, I can't even begin to imagine all of that. That is an extraordinary career and a wonderful body of work that you've put out there. Thank you so much. And perhaps you might tell us just a little bit about the latest book. And I actually have received a copy of it. So I'm so excited. The Reign and Life of Queen Elizabeth I. Well, I call this my big book about Elizabeth because I've done so many other books about Elizabeth. Uh, one I'm incredibly proud of was The Heart and Stomach of a King, Elizabeth I and the Politics of Sex and Power. But for this book, what I wanted to do was sort of all the different fascinating aspects I could talk about about Elizabeth and her reign. And so the first part is more about politics and religion. And there are chapters on her coronation, on the Privy Council. And I thought this was really important because the Privy Council was significant. It, these were the men who gave her advice, who she listened to, who she met with sometimes several times a week. But I couldn't find anything that listed every single member of her Privy Council. And so in my chapter on it, not only do I talk about what the Privy Council was and the secretaries, the principal secretaries and the clerks and so on, but every member from the beginning of her reign in 1558 to the end of her reign in 1603. And, and that was really fascinating research to do. I also have chapters on her parliaments, on her Archbishops of Canterbury, fabulous, interesting chapter on the various courtships and favorites that she had, because I think she loved, loved, loved courtship, but hated the idea of actually getting married on assassination attempts. And there were so many terrifying assassination attempts potential heirs to her throne, and there were many of them. I also did chapters on the ambassadors and on the Spanish Armada. And then in the second part on society and culture, I have a large chapter called Elizabeth's England and Others. And I talked about the people who first came willingly to England to visit. And these were aristocrats, sometimes even royalty, such as the Swedish Princess Cecilia, and then those who came because they came as refugees, uh, and a number of those were Jewish people, and then those who came against their will, and that included people who were brought as slaves. So that was a fascinating chapter and, and painful chapter to write as well. But I also wanted to do things that were kind of more unusual and fascinating. There's the kind of... Um, tradition that Elizabeth hated mirrors and wouldn't look at herself in a mirror. So I thought, well, I want to learn about that. And I found there were actually enormous mirrors in most of her palaces. So clearly she wasn't that upset with mirrors. And she was also fascinated because John Dee, who was an astrologer and a magician and a, kind of a 
a friend of hers in a sense, she actually went to visit him and asked to look at his magic mirror, which she was allowed to do. I'm fascinated in dreams, and I did a whole book called Dreaming the English Renaissance. And so I have a chapter on dreams about Queen Elizabeth, both by people who knew her and people at other courts, and also the fragments we know about her own dreams that she mentioned. There's sort of, the, again, the tradition that it's Elizabeth and her male courtiers, but Elizabeth actually had close friendships among women from the time she was a child. And so I have a chapter on those. I'm also fascinated by slander, rumor, gossip. I think often we learn a great deal about a time period, not by what actually happened, but by the kind of rumors about what might have happened. So I have a whole chapter on that. And then finally, I ended it with a chapter I called Elizabeth's Pleasures, because she had a hard time ruling, but there were things she did for fun too. And I thought it was important to look at those. So I I did immense research for it, uh, but I wrote it in a way that I tried to be very accessible so anybody who likes Elizabeth, is interested in it, could pick it up and find it fun and fascinating to read. I was really proud of the book. It took a number of years to do. What an incredible resource. And as you say, it's just a wonderful resource, but also such a wonderful read as well. And I love that you've made it accessible for, for all people because our listeners come from all walks of life. So that's really, really fantastic. And I should just mention for everyone listening that that Carol is in fact one of our speakers for A Weekend with Elizabeth I that's coming up in February. So you're focusing particularly on that one on Elizabeth's uh, pleasures, which is wonderful. So if you're interested in learning more about that in detail, join us, join us for that weekend. You'll find all the information on my on social media channels. So, And uh, Carol, I want to know that you're obviously incredibly passionate about Elizabeth. Our listeners can't see, but you're wearing an incredible brooch there that, that has Elizabeth on it. It's beautiful. We'll have to maybe get a picture of it or something. So when did you first become interested in her life? And what is it about her that makes her such a fascinating subject? Well, it's kind of amazing, really. Though I'm not now, when I was a child, I was very shy. And the high point of my week was when my mom would take me to the public library. And as well as reading fairy tales, I would gravitate toward the shelf of kids' biographies. And I remember, though I didn't realize I was a women's historian, I clearly was really interested even as a child, because I remember picking up the biography of Louisa May Alcott, for example, and Florence Nightingale. And then one week I picked up the biography of Queen Elizabeth and it was kind of like a light bulb went off on my head. I was absolutely fascinated by her. And obviously the way I think about her is very different now than when I was a child, but I started reading everything I could about her and about the Tudors. And I think what was to me amazing was first her bravery, but second, how she managed to survive in incredibly difficult ways and her her carefulness in doing that and how she handled herself so that even though she was in danger in uh, her brother's reign, in her sister's reign, she became queen when she was only 25 and she reigned for uh, over 44 years and she did it alone. And I thought that was immensely impressive as well. So I've just always been fascinated with her. And there's certainly things she did I don't approve of or agree with and make me sad. But there's much that I think is very, very impressive about her as well. And lots of things that are just fun and fascinating about her. 
And I love that it began with a book so many times. I think that's how, you know, our passions start with a book mindset they did as well. You were talking about those chapters. So we're going to touch on some of those subjects. So let's start with Elizabeth's Privy Council. Do you want to tell us just a little bit about the function of, of the Privy Council and also who were those men that she <laughs> trusted? Well, the Privy Council developed as a, a council of advisors for, I'm going to say the king, because until her sister Mary, it was the king. And it became in the reign of, of Henry VIII, it became significant, especially after the break with Rome and his advisors who gave him advice about how to handle certain things, people like Thomas Cromwell, for example. When Elizabeth became queen, she was smart enough to realize that she should take over the privy council of her older sister, Mary. And while some people were now kept on it, she did keep a number so that there would be some consistency and she could express, which I think was the most important thing to her, that she was the queen of all the English. And so she had a privy council, but then she appointed a number of others to it over the years. The person I think she trusted most, who was her first principal secretary and later became her Lord Treasurer, was William Cecil. And she had known Cecil since she was in her teens. He had helped her out in a number of ways. And as I say, she was only 25 when she became queen. She sent for Cecil and she told him that she had full trust in him. And one of the things that was most important was that he would not hold back on the advice that he gave her, even if he thought she might not agree with him necessarily. And they had, I think, a pretty amazing relationship. He was principal secretary and then, as I said, Lord Treasurer. He didn't die until about 1598, though in the last years he was very ill and his, his son Robert, by his second marriage, had taken over the role eventually of principal secretary. But when, when he was terribly ill, Elizabeth went down to see him and she sat at his bedside and with her own hands spooned broth into his mouth. And as he was dying, he told his son, Robert, serve God by serving the queen. So he was incredibly important to her, important in terms of helping her with religious matters, helping her with negotiations with other country. He felt, especially in the early years, it was desperately important to get her married. And this was something, of course, he did not succeed at. And I think eventually realized that was probably for the best. She also had great trust in Sir Francis Walsingham, and Walsingham became principal secretary when Cecil became Lord Burley and uh, Lord Treasurer. And Walsingham was incredibly important, not only for his general advice, but he kept a spy network. He thought it was really important to keep her safe. And so he had spies around, and some of them were would be, in a sense, double agents and get involved in plots against Elizabeth so that uh, they could inform Walsingham. He had codes that and code breakers. And he was, again, a very, very loyal to Elizabeth. But the third person that I think was really important, who was also on her Privy Council eventually, was Robert Dudley. And Dudley played a kind of a different role for her. She'd known Dudley since she was a child. Dudley once said, I knew Elizabeth since she was eight years old, and she told me then she would never marry. And I would just say as an aside, when she was eight years old, her stepmother, Catherine Howard, was executed. And if Elizabeth did not know what had happened to her mother before that, she certainly would have learned it then. 
She knew Robert very well. She may have even been at his wedding when he was only 17 and married Amy Robsart. And when they were both in the tower in Mary's reign, they were able for a while to send messages to each other. He sold land so he could give some money to help Elizabeth out. And just as she sent for Cecil, she also immediately sent for Robert Dudley when she became queen on November 17th, 1558. And she made him her master of the horse, which meant not only did he choose horses for her, he rode with her, but he also was with her in many ways at court. And he became an important advisor, but he was also someone she clearly cared deeply about and I think had uh, certainly a romantic affection for. Those were the three men who were probably most important. There were others as well that she really trusted and who served her very well in the Privy Council, including the Earl of Sussex, for example. But I think Cecil Walsingham and Dudley were really the most important three men. Yeah, that's such a, a moving little vignette that her feeding Cecil the, the broth. I think that's such a sort of human portrait of, of a queen that's often, you know, we've got this facade and it's difficult to find the woman, isn't it? But that that's so moving and touching. It really is. And the fact that she started her reign telling him of her trust in her and that, you know, he ended by telling his son the importance of that, I thought was amazing also. Absolutely. Um, and, and of course, Elizabeth was surrounded by men all the time and including foreign ambassadors, a lot of foreign ambassadors. So yeah. what was their role at court and, and what was Elizabeth's relationship like with, with some of these men? Well, I think that's really fascinating because, of course, their kind of public role was to negotiate with Elizabeth, find out what's at court. But they also kind of had a more private role to sneak around and find all sorts of things about what was going on with her and the others at court that they could send back often again, as I said, in coded letters. So many of those coded letters were read because of the cleverness of Walsingham and his code breakers. But what I find most amazing about that is how much that says about the individuals. So the Spanish ambassadors, for example, the very early ones in, in her reign, like the Quadra, was very, very hostile to Elizabeth. Elizabeth, of course, had been, well, Henry VIII broke with the Catholic Church so he could end his marriage to Catherine of Aragon when she had no living sons and then married Anne Boleyn. Sure, he would have a son with her and, and didn't. But Elizabeth was, of course, a Protestant. And as I said, her view, I think, was to be as broadly based as a Protestant as possible, and also not to persecute Catholics. As For the first 10 years, no Catholics died during her reign. This changed after Mary Stuart fled to, to England. But de Quadra was very hostile to Elizabeth, and he had all sorts of spies at court and all sorts of things. But when he left, the next ambassador, Guzman de Silva, she really liked as a person. And he seemed to really enjoy her company. And the result was she talked to him a lot about a lot of things, which then he did write. So his letters have been just incredibly valuable to, to us about what was going on at Elizabeth's court. One I thought was amazing was he, he wrote about how he had been with Elizabeth to close to two in the morning watching a play at court. We don't know what this play was. And she, of course, was translating for him as they watched it. But he said she really disliked the ending because it ended, it was a comedy ending in a marriage. And she really disliked the idea that 
women had to get married. And I thought that was just so amazing. She would take him hunting. They really were friends. And he was there for four years. And I also, just before I go on to what I'm talking about when he left, the first time he saw her, there's this amazing interchange between them that he writes to Philip of Spain about, in which she says, she asks about Philip's sister, who was a young widow. And then she says, well, that would be a great marriage if I married his sister. Of course, since I'm older, I'd be the husband. And I don't think that in any way suggests that she was interested in lesbian relationships, but I think it says a lot about why she really didn't want to get married because she didn't want to play the role of wife. She wanted to be the husband. So I thought that was fascinating. De Silva found the English weather very hard on him. He found being in a Protestant country difficult. And in 1568, Philip uh, agreed to send him as ambassador to Venice instead. Elizabeth was devastated. You know, she had to fill the come see her. She told him how sad she was. He told her, well, you know, I'm leaving, but I think things are in really good shape. Unfortunately, the next ambassador, Despez, was utterly hostile to Elizabeth. And this, as I mentioned, Mary Stuart had fled to England. And on the one hand, she sent word to Elizabeth saying, you're my best friend, help me out, blah, blah, blah. On the other hand, she's sending word to the Spanish ambassador saying, if your master will help me, I'll be queen of England in three months and mass will be set all over the kingdom. So there are all these efforts to assassinate Elizabeth and put Mary on the throne. And Despes was finally exiled from England because of his role. And later, the Spanish ambassador, uh, Mendoza, who's the last Spanish ambassador in her reign, was also exiled because of his incredible involvement in plans to free Mary Stuart and have Elizabeth murdered. So some of the ambassadors, she had close relationships some she didn't. All of them had interesting things to say about her, though. Another ambassador that I thought was fascinating was Sir James Melville. And before Mary Stuart was forced to abdicate and was imprisoned and then escaped, she sent Melville to talk to Elizabeth. And there were a number of things they needed to deal with. Mary at that point had been widowed. Her first husband had been the heir and then briefly the King of France. She wanted to uh, remarry. Uh, Elizabeth had ideas about who she should and shouldn't marry, all sorts of issues about that. But when uh, Melville came, there was also this amazing kind of, well, who's prettier, who's taller, the better musician. And, you know, Melville tried to be very, very diplomatic as a diplomat about these. Well, one exchange I thought was very, very funny was she said, well, who's fairer? And he said, oh, uh, she's the fairest queen in Scotland. You're the fairest queen in England, blah, blah, blah. And then she said, well, who's taller? And he said, well, my queen, Mary Stewart. Mary Stewart was very tall. And then she, Elizabeth responds, well, then she's too tall because I'm the perfect height. <laughs> But one of the things Melville said to Elizabeth early in the reign is, Madam, I know you will never marry because if you marry, you will be the Queen of England and now you are King and Queen. And I thought that was very insightful on the part of Melville. What fascinating relationships. I think a project on, you know, Elizabeth through the eyes of her ambassadors would be absolutely fascinating. So you talked, Carol, there about obviously the dangers that Elizabeth faced from the moment that she became queen, you know, plots, assassination attempts. So how did she actually respond to these concerns? And were there any precautions put in place in order to try to protect her? Well, there were. And Cecil and Walsingham were very upset because she didn't take it they thought as seriously as she needed to. She absolutely refused to have a taster. 
And in fact, she loved to go on progress. She loved to, on Sundays, she'd travel around the city. Every summer she'd leave. And it was actually really smart of her because she'd go visit. Sometimes she'd go to her own other palaces, but more often she'd go and visit her various friends, courtiers, who then spent a fortune, not only on her visit, because she'd bring her whole court with her, but Cecil was just terribly upset. She'd be out and some lady would say, oh, I made this cake for you and say, oh, thank you. Take a bite. Well, obviously she could have been poisoned. So that was terribly upsetting. For a long time, she was like, oh, you know, it's kind of like this is the people's house too. And people could just kind of come into her palaces and look around, take kind of talk to the guards. But then one time, three foreigners got into the palace, got to the kitchen, and then ran out. And there was terrible fear. Are they trying to poison her? And then they, Cecil said, we've got to be more careful about this. Walsingham, as I said, had all sorts of spy networks, and that was used to keep Elizabeth safe. There were also guards, but not as many as you would expect. And there was one assassination in Hoyt, and this was uh, Parry's assassination attempt. And he was a strange guy, but she was out in the gardens with her ladies. And apparently he came and he had a knife and she saw him and she just stared him down, which was pretty amazing, but pretty terrifying too. So I think Cecil and Walsingham never felt she took enough care. In 1588, at the time of the Spanish Armada, Robert Dudley, uh, the, who was by then Earl of Leicester, asked her to come to Tilbury to talk to the troops and kind of cheer them on. And they were there in case, in fact, the Spanish were able to land. And both Cecil and Walsingham don't go. It's too dangerous for you to leave court. But she went anyway. And Dudley, of course, had promised he would keep her safe. And because of that, we have her amazing Tilbury speech, which there's still questions about what it was. But I am convinced that, in fact, she did say, I may have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king and a king of England, too. I'm convinced that that was indeed her Tilbury speech. It gives you goosebumps, that line, doesn't it? It's like, it oh, does. It's so it does. And what I am convinced is that one of Dudley's assistants may well have been asked to take the speech and read it out to others who hadn't heard it yet. And many years later, he wrote to the Duke of Buckingham, George Villiers, who was having a hard time and said, well, to cheer you up, let me tell you Elizabeth's speech. And that seems to me pretty good evidence, though there were other versions of it that were circulating around as well. Oh, she was certainly courageous, that's for sure. We can't deny her that. And and we talked a little bit about some of her relationships with the men that surrounded her, but she was, of course, constantly surrounded by women as well at, you know, 24 hours a day. So who were some of her favorite women? And, and I mean, why? I think that's really important because, as I say, kind of traditionally people thought, oh, it was Elizabeth and her men. But two women who were incredibly important to her were women she'd known since she was a child. And one was Blanche Perry, and Blanche was very important to her and lived throughout most of Elizabeth's reign. But the one who was most important of all and to Elizabeth's intense sorrow died in 1565, and that was Cat Ashley. And Cat Ashley came into the household when Elizabeth was a very small child and then eventually was her governess and was very close to Elizabeth was with Elizabeth through many of the really harsh times before she became queen and then became the chief gentlewoman of her privy chamber once 
Elizabeth became queen. So the relationship with Cat Ashley was very, very strong. And Ashley would give her advice. And there were times when Elizabeth would get angry if Ashley gossiped, but it was a close relationship. And when Ashley died, we know, again, from letters from the ambassador, she canceled all her meetings for a few days because she was in such deep mourning. She also absolutely loved her cousin, Catherine Carey. Um, Mary Boleyn was married to William Carey, and Mary had been the mistress of Henry before Anne Boleyn, and I think Anne had seen, oh, Mary didn't get a whole lot of that. I don't think I want to be his mistress since he's talking about getting that marriage and else I'm going to hold out to be his queen. And there are some questions whether Mary's two children, uh, her daughter Catherine and her son Henry, were William Carey's children or Henry's children. I don't think we can ever know definitely, but I think from Elizabeth's point of view, they definitely weren't Henry's children because she had very difficult relationships with her Tudor cousins and family and very close relationships with her Boleyn ones. So I think from her point of view, at least, they were her Boleyn, her mother's family. And she absolutely loved Catherine Carey. And Catherine was, they were very close before she even became queen. And in fact, during Mary's reign, when a number of Protestants fled and Catherine was with her family fleeing, Elizabeth wrote, my heart is breaking because you're leaving. So that relationship was incredibly important. Uh, Henry Carey, Catherine's brother, had a daughter also named Catherine. And she was younger, but she and Elizabeth were really close, basically for Elizabeth's whole reign. And um, she died probably a month before Elizabeth. And everyone said she was just devastated by the death of that Catherine Carey. And so these friendships were very important to her. But I would also say they're not totally even friendships. She was the queen and they were not. And so, you know, in some cases, she'd be very close to someone who wanted to be with her husband who'd been sent off somewhere. And Elizabeth say, no, you're staying at court with me because you're my friend. I don't want to be without you. And that could sometimes be hard. But I think for those that she was close to, Elizabeth had great loyalty to them. And these women were very important to her. Very important. Yeah, uh, yeah. As someone who studies Anne Boleyn, like I do, I, I find it very touching how she valued and honored her her mother's relatives, like she did. She absolutely did, and a number of the women at court often were distant cousins of her through yeah. the Boleyn line. But we see that over and over and over again. And of course, there's that amazing ring that yeah. was found at the court of James, which was, you know, the outside of the ring had the E set in red stones, but when you opened it up, there was a miniature portrait of Anne Boleyn. And to me, that's, I mean, some scholars, and I disagree with them intensely, think, oh, she adored her father and she didn't care about her mother. I think she had a very complex and difficult relationship with her father. And I think she, though I don't know how much she really remembered her mother, she was under three when her mother was executed. But I think she so valued her mother. And for example, at her coronation, there was kind of this thing set up and it showed Henry VII and his wife, Elizabeth, but then Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. And I think Elizabeth was careful enough not to talk a lot about Anne since she had been executed by her father. But I think the loyalty to the Boleyns, different aspects we can find, her, her pride in being mere English showed how much she cared about her mother. 
Absolutely. I completely agree with you on that. And and so when you were introducing yourself, you mentioned this incredible story about the mirrors when you were talking about your love for Elizabeth and your passion for Elizabeth. I need to hear more about that, Carol. Can you tell us a little bit more about Elizabeth's relationship with mirrors? Well, I think it's really fascinating because the idea is, oh, and I think this just shows how much the uh, misogyny was because they said, oh, in the last decades of her reign, she would never look at herself in her mirror. And and some people said, oh, and her ladies, when they make her up, they'd paint her nose red and she'd never know it. Uh, and then some talked about how that she'd found this magic mirror that made her look young. But as I say, I think, I mean, I don't think she probably particularly liked to look at herself in hand mirrors, but she had no problems with mirrors. And, you know, there were these large mirrors at court. And I will just say, and this is just totally an idea of mine, and it's a poem that I've written, but I think sometimes Elizabeth looked in the mirror and also saw the image of her mother, Anne Boleyn, with her. That, that's a beautiful thought. And I agree with you. They obviously had striking similarities as well. So Wow, that's incredible. And and the mirrors had a symbolic meaning, didn't they, in the 16th century as well as just obviously reflecting your oh, appearance? Yes, because you, you have the mirror of the soul, you have the mirror of magistrates. It had all sorts of significance. And I think she was very aware of that. And she was very clever. And she would use all these things in a, in a way that I think showed her caring for her people. And and you also mentioned dreams that you're interested in dreams, and I share that I share that interest as well. So can you tell us a little bit about just those dreams that you mentioned that people had about her, and even the perhaps yeah. the that she had? Well, I mean, there's so many, and I was amazed. I, when I was working on my book, The Heart and Stomach of the King, I have to say I don't think there's any shortcuts to research, and especially when I was looking at questions of gender, of sexuality, of how she ruled, how people responded as an unmarried woman, how people responded to her as an unmarried woman. I think that it was really important to look at everything I could, so I did. And I was just fascinated because I found a dream from 1601 where this woman had this and this, of course, is around the time of the Essex Rebellion. And Elizabeth had this dream, and it was so powerful how her mother, Anne Boleyn, came back to Elizabeth. This is 75 years after Anne Boleyn's execution. Came to Elizabeth and said, you cannot leave court. You will be in danger if you leave court. This dream was so powerful. This woman told her husband. Her husband went and told her godfather, who was a former justice of peace, and he wrote to Robert Cecil about it. And I found that letter. I was amazed by that. I was just, oh my gosh, that was so fascinating. That dream was so powerful. And I ended up then using that as kind of the frame for the last chapter of The Heart and Stomach of King, and then deciding I want to do a whole book on it called Dreaming the English Renaissance. And then I did this chapter in this book. But another set of dreams I thought was absolutely fascinating was by a woman in Spain, Lucretia de Leon. And she had all these dreams about Elizabeth. And she told her confessor the dreams, and they became very well-known, but she talked about being brought over to England and seeing Elizabeth sitting there and seeing another woman sitting there with her, and then uh, Elizabeth taking a knife and just cutting off the head of the other woman, which clearly, I think, suggested Mary Stuart. And what a bloody and amazing dream that was as well. Simon Foreman, who was a astrologer, he called himself doctor, but he was never actually 
trained medically, but people would come to him and he'd give them various ways to feel better, but also spells about how to encourage somebody's love, interpretation of dreams. But he kept a, a journal of his own dreams and he twice dreamed about Elizabeth and both when she was quite elderly and, and one was kind of amazing because in the dream he thought he finds her and they're talking and then he thought he was going to kiss her and then he woke up and I thought that was really fascinating but we do know she had some dreams as well and during the time of the marriage negotiations with Anjou, who had been the Duke of Alençon, she told Christopher Hatton to write to Robert Dudley saying she was having bad dreams about marriages. And I thought that was fascinating. And I also thought, did she really have that? Or is she hinting to Dudley, I know about your secret marriage? I thought that was really fascinating. And then after the final attempt by Mary Stewart to have Elizabeth assassinated. Finally, after 18 years of these attempts, um, Mary was put on trial, though she said she they had no right to do that. And she was found guilty. But Elizabeth refused to sign the death warrant for a number of months. And Cecil and Walsingham were pretty clever. They got this other guy, Davison, to be a sec another secretary of state and they had him pressure Elizabeth to sign it, and she wouldn't. And then finally she said to him, okay, I'll sign it, but I have to tell you, I had a really bad dream last night where I signed it, and I was really angry about it. But he said, he, this was when he was investigated afterwards, she seemed so pleasant and humorous when she told me I didn't take that dream seriously. She signed it, and then she told Davison, but don't send it on until I tell you to. But of course, as soon as it was signed, he took it to Burley. Burley, called, Burley was not well, but he called men into his bedroom, said, let's send this out immediately, it was sent out, and then Mary was executed, and then somebody had to tell Elizabeth that it had happened, and she was said she was outraged, and Davison spent some time in the tower. But unlike her father, who was beheading people all the time for this or that, Davison was soon let out. He never had a career at court anymore, but she continued to pay him his salary. Wow, so that's so fascinating. And and it's so wonderful that you've included a, a chapter in your new book about this. And now I think I need to get your other book, Carol. <laughs> the Renaissance. I love it. it. I'm always buying new books. <laughs> oh, I love buying books too, I have to say. <laughs> that's my, my favourite pastime. I'm very good at it. Um, so earlier <laughs> you mentioned some of those rumours that you're interested in as well. So in 1581, Parliament actually passes an act against seditious words and rumours against Elizabeth. So can you give us some a few examples of those stories and rumors. Yes. I mean, it was fascinating. One of the things that was amazing were the number of rumors that she had illegitimate children. And these went back to rumors that in her brother Edward's reign, when she was only 14 or 15, she had an illegitimate child with Thomas Seymour. Many rumors that she had children by Robert Dudley. And I have to say, I think rumors are fascinating. I think this talks a lot about the worries over the succession. But I want to be very clear. Elizabeth never had any illegitimate children. We would know if she had. And I think she was very clever. And I think she had her cake and ate it too. I think she had a romantic relationship with Robert Dudley, possibly with Christopher Hatton. But I don't think she was ever had intercourse with either of them because I think she was very aware if she ever got pregnant and was unmarried, it would be a disaster for her. And I think if she was willing to actually be in a sexual relationship, she may well have 
gotten married, though it would have been very hard for her to find somebody everyone agreed on. But there were not only rumors that she had illegitimate children, but kind of horrifyingly rumors that she had them and then they were murdered. And I thought those were very strange, strange rumors. Another that I thought were very strange and interesting, and it's kind of like a 16th century Elvis version, but it was rumors that her brother Edward had been secretly taken out of the country and he would return when the time was right to save England. And I thought that was really fascinating. Again, this question of can we really trust a woman to rule over us? So those were very interesting as well. She certainly had a lot to contend with, didn't she, in her reign? She absolutely did. I mean, I think I think she was pretty remarkable. As I said, in the first 10 years, no Catholics were killed. Unfortunately, after Mary Stewart came and there were attempts, she was much harsher toward Catholics. She would say, well, these are people who were involved in plots, but there were also Catholics who were just, you know, hiding uh, priests who were not involved in plots, but some of them were also died, which I thought was very tragic. But I think Elizabeth had very modern views about religion in a sense. I mean, she once says, there's one Jesus Christ and all the rest is trifles. I thought that was remarkable. The other thing, and we know this from what was written in Sir Francis Bacon's book about Elizabeth, but she only cared about outward conformity. The popular term is she did not want to make uh, windows into men's souls, but it's actually into men's hearts and secret thoughts is what it would when we go back to Bacon. But I thought that was amazing too, when you think about what was going on in the uh, reign of her father, her brother, her sister, and then in other parts of, of Europe where people were being arrested and tortured because of their religious beliefs. And let's talk a little bit about what you mentioned earlier about that cultural diversity that existed in, in Elizabethan England. So can you tell us a little bit more about those people who came to live and stay there? Well, as I say, it's very interesting because a number came to visit who, you know, we we know about the English gentlemen and, and aristocrats who go visit the continent for their education. But a number of wealthy people and aristocrats on the continent came to see Elizabeth and Elizabeth's England. And in fact, I learned so many and talk about fascinating rumors from their letters and their journals. And some of it, I don't know if they didn't quite understand things, what was said to them. Some of it, I wonder if those who were giving the tours were just making up anything. But it was very funny sometimes to, to see what these people had to say. For example, they talked about, well, here was the bed where Jane Seymour was cut open so she could they could save Edward VI, but of course, Jane Seymour did not have a cesarean birth, but that was told many, many times. So these people came and had very interesting things to say, but also a number of Jewish refugees came who had fled the Iberian Peninsula, other parts, and they came, but they also had to, again, outward conformity. And so for ones who it was sometimes very dangerous. And a tragic case was Roderico Lopez, who was trained as a physician and very effective and outwardly attended Anglican services on occasion. But it seemed pretty clear he was still Jewish. And there were uh, underground Jewish communities, both in uh, London and also in Bristol. And he actually became one of uh, Queen Elizabeth's own physicians. He was so well thought of. But 
the Earl of Essex, after Walsingham's death, really wanted to show Elizabeth, you're in danger and I'm the only one who can keep you safe. And this is also after Robert Dudley's death. And so he accused Lopez of being involved in a plot to poison Elizabeth. He claimed that any involvement he had was he had worked for Walsingham and was, you know, he's totally loyal to Elizabeth. But Walsingham was dead. And personally, given what was happening to Jews in the Iberian Peninsula and given his success at Elizabeth's court, I don't think he was plotting to murder her, but we can't absolutely know. But what we can know is that Essex just blew all this up intensely to make himself look good. And I think I think Elizabeth doubted it too. I mean, Lopez was found guilty. He was sentenced to be executed. The play, The Jew of Malta, Marlowe by this time was dead, but that play was put back on. It shows the evil Barabbas, the Jew who murdered many, many characters in the play. Shakespeare wrote Merchant of Venice, which is much more subtle about this. But again, that was put on. But Elizabeth waited months before she finally signed Lopez's death warrant. And of course, as a traitor, all his goods were confiscated, but she did help out Sarah Lopez and also his oldest, their oldest child who was in university so he could keep his education. And so I wondered if she also had doubts about Lopez. And there were other Jews in England at the time, but there were also, and it's kind of horrifying, explorers would go out and they would kidnap people and bring them back to England and sometimes bring them back as potential gifts for Elizabeth. And that's really horrifying as well. It seems clear to me, though there weren't a large number of them, there certainly was a, a Black community in London, and certainly some of them did not have freedom of movement. But even if they, in a sense, did, I mean, I mentioned Simon Foreman earlier, and we know about a young girl, she was in her early teens, and she was African, and she, her mistress brought her to Foreman because she was in, had a lot of stomach pain, and um, he did various things. I don't know how much it helped her. We don't know much more beyond that. But um, her husband was a merchant. And my guess is he either brought this girl back himself or she was, I'm putting it in quotation marks, a gift. But even if she wasn't officially a slave, if you're brought to a new country, you don't know the language, how are you going to escape? And so I think the lives of these people, I wish we we know something about them. I wish we knew more because it's very, very tragic. And, you know, people talk about Sir Francis Drake as this kind of hero, and in a sense he was during the Spanish Armada, but we know this from uh, the man who was his minister aboard the ship, uh, that Drake kidnapped three people, two men, men, one of the men died very soon, but one woman, and the woman was gang raped. And when she became pregnant, Drake left her and the other man on some island where they were probably left to die. So... I think we need to know that was going on in Elizabeth's England, as well as the, the things we can be proud of. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. Such tragic stories, but we need to acknowledge them and 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 talk about them as well, I think is important about those people's lives. So right, I'm going to move to a slightly lighter topic to end our conversation, Carol, and you end your book on a chapter on Elizabeth's pleasures. So I thought we might end our conversation in the same way, because I think this is so fascinating. So what kinds of things and pastimes did Elizabeth enjoy? She had a lot of pleasures. And I mentioned Cat Ashley earlier, and Cash Ashley was upset about Elizabeth's closeness to Robert Dudley. And Elizabeth actually said, 
he makes me laugh. And given how serious and hard her job was, that was probably really important. She liked to play games. She liked to play cards. She liked to play chess. But she also liked a lot of very physical activities. She loved to walk. She loved to walk in gardens. She loved to go hunting. But again, she's very political. So as well as enjoying this, this also gave her a chance to have informal conversations with people she'd invite to go hunting with her, including ambassadors. She loved to dance. She loved to dance. And she and Dudley would dance together. She'd dance with others. But every morning... I'm so impressed with this. And this is when she's well into her 60s. She would get up and she would do the galliard, which was a very active dance. And she'd do it eight times. And uh, wow, that was something she just really, really enjoyed. But she also sort of enjoyed kind of rubbing the nose of her younger cousin James in it because he would send Henry Aston to visit with her if there was something he wanted to communicate. And she would have Aston wait for her, but she'd have the curtain open so he could see her doing her dancing and let James know, Elizabeth is not feeble. She's still going strong. And we talked about dreams earlier. And James, while he was king of Scotland, actually had a dream he'd never become king of England. And uh, I think it was probably because, oh, when is that woman going to die? She's taking so much exercise. Uh, Elizabeth, before she became queen, loved to do translations. That was a great joy for her. She did some after she became queen, but I think she didn't have the time. Again, before she became queen as princess, she loved to do embroidery. Uh, one of the things she did was a very beautiful book for her last stepmother, Catherine Parr. And she did a translation and... We're talking about mirrors earlier, but it was the mirror of the sinful soul. And then she embroidered the back and front of the book for Catherine Parr. She then took some of Catherine's prayers, translated them into three languages, and put them in a book with an embroidered back and front for her father, Henry VIII, as a gift. So she enjoyed that. She did almost no embroidery after she became queen. And again, I think she just did not have the time to do those things. She loved music, loved it, loved listening to it, but also loved playing music. And um, sometimes, you know, I mentioned that she wanted Melville to compare her and Mary. So at one point she had Melville come and theoretically she didn't know. So she's playing her instruments and then she's, oh, if I'd known you were here, I never would have done it. But then she wants to know who's the better musician, her or Mary Stewart. But she loved doing that. She also loved gifts and she would get New Year's gifts every year and at the beginning of her reign, it was usually gold. And then she had her ladies in waiting saying, I don't, I don't want to get gold. I want real gifts. And she got close to 200 every year. Plus, every time she went on progress, not only would there be great entertainments, but she'd always get a gift from her hosts as well. So I think she loved gifts. So she was a little stingy. She once said she loved to take with both hands and give with her little finger, which I thought was great. And she never gave gifts back, which were of the same value as the gifts she was getting, except when she was re-gifting, which she did quite a bit of as well. And it was always interesting because uh, in many cases, we have the gift rolls and she would get these gifts and then she would decide, should that go into, you know, where the storage of gifts or is this something I'm going to keep by me? And that was really interesting as well. So she had a hard time, but she also had a lot of fun, and I'm kind of glad about that. I'm glad that she kept dancing her whole life. She went hunting when she was in her late 60s, so she was a pretty amazing, impressive woman.
Yes, I always marvel at how accomplished the women, you know, a lot of women in the 16th century were, like all those skills. That is absolutely amazing. And I love the dancing, Carol. I think we should all take a leaf out of Elizabeth's book and begin our day with uh, some galliards. I'm thinking about it, Natalie. <laughs> absolutely love it. I love that. And, and there's one last question that I like to ask my guests on Talking Tudors, and that's for a Tudor takeaway. So this is something for our listeners to go off and explore after the episode. So do you have a takeaway for us? Well, I do have a takeaway. I love Elizabeth so much, as I mentioned, I not only have done all these scholarly works on her, I've also done a children's book about her, and I wrote a full-length play about her. And it actually, I use the dream about Anne Boleyn and one of the characters in the play is is the ghost of Anne Boleyn and there are two Elizabeths, the old Elizabeth and then thinking back over her reign and the young Elizabeth. And I was fortunate enough, I was so lucky, a friend and colleague in St. Louis actually produced the play. It was directed on a weekend in June and it was videotaped and it is now up on YouTube, and it's called Play About Elizabeth I, To Speak or Use Silence. And that was the kind of a real question for her. When was it good to speak and when was it not? And so if you look for my name and you look at Play About Elizabeth, To Speak or Use Silence, you could find it on YouTube. And the other nice thing about it, and I was so impressed with it, it's also begun and at the intermissions with beautiful Elizabethan singing as well. Oh, that so, sounds like a treat. It's a treat. And one of the things it was for me, at least, but one of the things I love about it is it certainly has my points of view and stuff, but it also, I really tried to be historically accurate with it as well. Uh, I mean, we don't know there was ever a ghost of Anne Boleyn, but in terms of events, I tried to present them accurately. That's my takeaway. And it gave me so much pleasure to write the play and then to see it performed. And I'd love to share it with people everywhere. Oh, that sounds absolutely wonderful. I know what I'm going to be doing after this, Carol, watching your play and, and Googling all your books so I can buy everything. <laughs> so you, you'll keep me entertained today. And I will add a link to that YouTube video to our show notes so that everyone can find it nice and easily. And we all have something wonderful to watch. Carol, this has been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for making the time to talk tutors with us. Natalie, I want to thank you. I think the work you do is just wonderful. And I love that you're getting people to enjoy and think about the tutors all over the world. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tutors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners. So if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetutortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family. And don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tutors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm -hmm.